Philippians chapter 3. It's good to have all the holidays behind us and to a new year. I mean, I enjoy the holidays, don't get me wrong, but boy, you just get all discombobulated and all the schedules are goofed up. And so we're back to our normal schedule now on Wednesday nights. And I just want to exhort you as brother in the Lord that uh, we do have a Wednesday night prayer meeting at 6.30. And we also have a Wednesday evening Bible study at 7 p.m. And um, I believe whenever we have the opportunity to gather together as a body of Christ and for prayer or for God's Word, that should be a priority in a believer's life. Um, it's not something we should take lightly. And um, if you want my further thoughts on that, you can read it in the bulletin. Here to exhort you this morning. We're in the book of Daniel, if you're interested, and uh, we meet every Wednesday night. But uh, this morning we're back in Philippians chapter 3. And I just want to read the first uh, three verses for us this morning. We're going to spend a couple of weeks going through this because it's just some of the things that Paul talks about here, we may not totally get in our culture. We may not totally uh, absorb it, and so we need some ex explanation. And so today, if you will, you look on your outlines, you say there's no notes there. That's right, because today is just the introduction. And so um, you can take some notes on there, but I didn't, I uh, just kind of left it open. Um, but Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, and we touched on this last week. Uh, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. <clears throat> For me to write these uh, same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. <clears throat> now, the, the beginning of this verse here, finally, he's not saying this is, it's not like a wrap-up. You know, he's not saying in conclusion. That's not what he's saying. All right, this is just kind of a transition from what he just came out of in uh, uh, Philippians chapter 2, talking about service and, and talking about Timothy and, and Paul and Epaphrodites. And uh, here Paul is, is not concluding because there's still... 40-some verses left, all right? So we can't say that he's concluding his remarks, but it's, it's kind of an important transition in the book of Philippians. Now, you notice there he says right off, finally, my brethren, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of neat to, to understand the fellowship that we share in Christ, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not just detached. Um, we're, we're actually part of a, a bigger family. I don't know about you, but family means a lot to me. And um, sometimes, uh, you know, when you have the opportunity to spend time with family, pretty much most of us would do whatever we can to do that. And uh, we need to look at the body, the church body, is similar. Because uh, it really is. We're here to support one another. We're here for each other's benefit. Um, we're not here to be entertained. We're not here to be, you know, pumped up. Um, with some, you know, talk or something like that. We're here to, to gather around God's Word and to have fellowship in the Spirit with one another, and that should encourage us. And um, that should build our faith up. And so when you see a sign of a, of a church where that's falling off, you wonder, whoa, what's wrong? There's something wrong here in people's lives. The priorities are out of whack. And so Paul, when he starts here, he says, Finally, my brethren, relates to them as his brethren, he says, Rejoice in the Lord. And this is just one of the many times that in the book of Philippians, he calls us to rejoice. 
And he's not talking about happiness here. He's talking about a joy, a deep-seated joy that we've gone over before that only Christ can give. This is a joy that can not come from your circumstances. A lot of times, if you get your joy from your circumstances, you're going to be sorely mistaken because that's called happiness. And that depends on happenings around you. So if you go to work one day and you get a promotion and you're just making a lot more money than you were in that morning after you talked to the boss, you're going to come home and you're going to be happy. You know, uh, that's not joy. That's just happiness. You may go in the next day and the boss says, you know what, I rethought this, now you're fired. You know, what are you going to do then? You know, where's that joy go? See, that's not the kind of joy where it's not happiness, it's joy. It's something only the Lord can give. And that's why he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on, he says, for me to write these same things to you is not tedious, but it is safe. Uh, he had in his heart, really, you know, he wanted to, 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 to reach out to them in a way that sometimes when you're trying to reach someone and you go over the same point over and over, you know, sometimes with your, your children, you're trying to teach them a principle. And it's like, you know, every time you, you start... In, you know, it's like you see their eyes glaze over. It's like, oh, here they go again, you know. And uh, sometimes that's even true of husband and wives, you know, here they go again, you know. But the, the point is this, is that the, the principle here is that he wants us to, to, to understand some things. He wanted the Philippian church to understand some things. And he already reminded him about it once, but he, he said, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take a chance here and uh, remind you again. I'm going to go over the same things with you. Because it's safe for you. His, his mindset was not about their relationship. Okay? He didn't hold off from telling people things because maybe they wouldn't like them anymore. See, that's the age, the day and age we live in today. If, if you have a hard thing to say to somebody, you know, a lot of times we think twice because you're thinking, well, after I say this, they may not like me anymore. And the Bible says clearly that, you know, if you're a true friend, you're willing to say the hard things. You're willing to go the extra mile for somebody and sit them down and say, hey, you know what, I see this, this, this character flaw in your, in your life. You know, we need to look at this. Um, that's what brothers and sisters in Christ are all about. So he says, it's not tedious for me to do this. And then in verse 2 he says, beware of dogs. And you'll notice he talks about two groups of people here, but then he kind of describes them, the two groups in three different ways each. First of all, the first group here, beware of the dogs, beware of evil workers, and beware of the mutilation. Okay, he's talking about the, the Jews of the day that were basically religious people. They were very religious people. And then in verse 3, he talks about another group, which he includes himself in. He says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, as we introduce this, this portion of Scripture, there's a lot of um, kind of background information that we need to go over so that we can lay a proper foundation for what we need to understand here. You know, he uses the word circumcision a couple times. We need to understand what that's all about. Um, and so he talks about those two groups. The first one is the, you might call the, the, the false circumcision. Group number one, the dogs, the evil workers, the mutilation, all right? Or group number two, those who worship in spirit, of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. And he gives three characteristics of each. And it's kind of that you see a contrast there going on in verse 2 and verse 3. And there's a distinction here between those of the false circumcision, and we're going to go into this a little more today, and those of the true circumcision. He's drawing kind of a line in the sand before, be, between those who profess to be the people of God 
and those who are the people of God. It's a distinction between those who are religious, you might say, and those who are righteous. It's a distinction between, really, what he's going over here is an outward mark, circumcision. He's making a distinction between that outward mark that identifies them with God and those who have an inward change. See, so many times it's easy to put on the outward garb of religion. We come to church, we pray, we do all this stuff. But God's, you know, that, that's, that's okay if that comes from an inward change. But if there hasn't been an inward change in somebody's life and they're doing all this outward stuff, God says, you know what, that, that's not good. And we're going to go into that a little bit this morning. And throughout the whole New Testament, you see basically the theme of who is the true child of God? Who is the true believer? Who is the true Christian? I mean, there, there's really two themes that run kind of side by side, almost like a thread through the New Testament. And the first, one, the first thing is it's, it's the presentation of the gospel. It's understanding what the gospel is. is. Is the gospel just this, you know, Jesus wants to make you feel better? Is that the gospel? Jesus wants to meet your felt needs? Is that the gospel? Come to Jesus and everything will be hokey-dokey? No, that's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as you look through the record of the gospel work of Christ through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the gospel presented, and then you begin to go through the, the book of Acts, and you see that same character of the, the gospel is, is even more expanded and amplified in the, in the epistles. And finally, it's communicated even in the book of Revelation. There's a common thread throughout the New Testament of the presentation of the gospel. But there's a secondary theme that kind of runs right around that. And the secondary theme that runs through the New Testament, and it runs right alongside of or behind the, the, the presentation of the gospel, it's who totally understands the gospel. Who is a true Christian? And once you understand what the gospel is, I think that there's an important line to draw in the sand to say, okay, now who, who has taken hold of that gospel? Who is a true believer and who is not? In 2 Corinthians, Paul says very clearly, examine yourselves to, be, to, to know whether or not you're in the faith. See, sometimes I think as a, as a body of believers and, and as a Christian, even myself, sometimes we take a lot of things for granted. We just, you know, hey, our faith, I'm a Christian. and you know, we just kind of go on our life. Um, you know, the Bible says there through Paul in 2 Corinthians that we should examine ourselves whether or not you're in the faith. I'm not trying to put doubt in people's minds. But you know what? Even Jesus said in Matthew 7, the last time there's going to be many that stand before him and say, Lord, Lord. But he'll confess to them, you know what? Depart from me. I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. So it wasn't that they weren't doing works. They were doing good works. But the good works were just an outward sign. They were just an outward symbol to them of their religion. There was no inward change in their hearts. Some people think that they're children of God. Some people think that they're Christians. And they think that they belong inside the covenant. They think that they be, they're part of the kingdom of God. And you know what? Unfortunately, they're sadly mistaken. And so the theme is not only the presentation of the gospel through the New Testament, but, but it's also who knows Christ and who doesn't. 
You stop and you think Jesus, when he was confronting the false faith of the Pharisees and the religious leaders in Israel. And it goes right on to where Peter is exposing the false faith of Simon in the New Testament. Or even Paul, when he warns of the false faith of the Judaizers, those religious kind of zealots that basically were all caught up in the religion. And they demanded people to observe certain laws and to be circumcised or they couldn't be saved. All this kind of stuff. And then even James, who describes that dead faith is a result of a fruitless life. A fruitless life is a result of dead faith. See, people can have faith, beloved, and it may not be the alive faith. It may not be the biblical faith. Even Jude, he, he squares off against those phonies in the church in his little epistle. And even in the book of John, or in the, the, the revelation that, that John wrote, in the final pages of our Bibles, you see that he records a description of a church that had a name, it says, but they had no life. It thought it was alive, but in fact it was dead. And everywhere, as you follow that theme through the New Testament, there's high points and there's low points, but the theme of true Christianity runs like kind of an unbroken thread through the fabric of the New Testament. And so we find ourselves this morning in Philippians 3, 1 to 3, and we want to look at in the coming weeks the basic matter of who is a Christian? Who is a true Christian? If you go out on the street and you ask, are you a Christian? Probably, you know, 85% of the people will say, yeah. But what do they mean by that? It's been a, it's kind of a, a term that's been used in such a way that it doesn't mean anything anymore. See, there are those who claim to be children of God, and then there are those who are children of God. And there's, there's a very important line there. And, and I know that only God can see the heart. This isn't meant to be judgmental in any way, but it's a very important line that, that we need to address with some people. There are those who are very religious in their practice every day. But you know what? On the other side of that, there are those who are righteous because of Christ. That's the, that's the issue. Where do we fall in this? Every system of religion, you might say, without relationship, Every system of religion without righteousness, whether it's the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, the Christian scientists, the Roman Catholic Church, the liberal Protestant Church, wherever you want to put your finger, wherever they say, you know what, human achievement is the goal. In other words, they assume that if you do fewer bad works and more good works, and some of them even hold to certain good works, they, somehow you're going to earn favor with God. I'm just here to tell you this morning, that's a false religious system. That's a system that offers no hope. It's a system that basically throws it back in your lap and says, well, you know what? Make up, make up it what you can. Do the best you can. And it seems that there's always something lacking. There's always more you could do. You know, I'm here to tell you this morning, you know what? You couldn't do enough to save yourself. There's no way. If there was, I doubt if, if God would have sent His only begotten Son to die and to go through what He did, if there was another way, if somehow He could have even given us a chance and said, you know what, I'll let you work it out. If you do so many good works, then I'll put it in the balance of the scales, and then maybe you'll be led into, into heaven. 
I'm sure if that was an option for him, maybe he would have done that to spare his son the, the agony. But he didn't do that. He sent his son because he knew that there was no way, it was impossible for men, women, children to be saved outside of Christ. And those people are very religious people. Sometimes they even put our, our church and, and churches like ours to shame with their religiosity, with their traditions, with their family practices, everything. But that doesn't make it that they're the, a true believer in Christ. And sometimes people are deceived about their true relationship with God. And you know what? That's the case we find here in the Philippian church. They were obviously being attacked by people who were demanding that they be circumcised. They had to do that before they could actually be saved. And it's not new. This isn't, wasn't new to them, and it's not new to us today. These people always kind of hassled the Apostle Paul, as you remember, when he began to preach the gospel of grace, when he began to preach that, you know what, you're saved by, by grace, by faith, through grace alone. And so Paul is warning about these people. And he's warning in very strong terms. If you just look at what he calls them, he calls them dogs. He calls them evil workers. And he calls them the false circumcision. He sets them apart from the people who truly worship God. Who worship God in spirit and truth. And glory in Christ. And they don't put any confidence in the flesh. It's just the opposite. These people put all their confidence in the flesh. And so we're going to look at, in the coming weeks, the comparison between the true, truly righteous people and also those who are truly religious. The false and the true. Now, as far as a little bit of background here, I'm going to use this handheld mic, I think, George. So there when the battery's done. Just a little bit of background here. In the context of what Paul is writing here, okay, we have to understand that he's dealing with Jews. Um, they were the dominant religion in his environment when, when he was writing this. And, and to them, he's basically making reference there in verse 2. Um, there were many religious Jews in the world in that day. And they believed that they were the people of God and they maintained a covenant relationship with God which secured their salvation and their eternal life. That's what they believed. And the proof of their identity was simply a mark. It was a mark. They bore the mark as children of Abraham. And naturally, that affirmed their right to be called the children of God supernaturally, so they thought. And for centuries, the Jews have continued to hold on to that mark. And by that mark, they were assumed that they're secure with God, all because of that mark. The mark is circumcision. That's what the mark is. To the Jews of the time of Jesus and, and the time of Paul and even before and even now, circumcision is a very important mark. It's the badge of their Jewishness, you might say. And it's always been important to the degree that even the, the Jewish Talmud says this. Look at what it says. I'll, I'll quote this for you. It says, the commandment of circumcision is more important than all other injunctions of Scripture. That's how important circumcision is to one of the Jewish faith. 
In other words, the most important thing that a Jew can do to secure a relationship with God is to have circumcision. Now, obviously, it's only for men, but that's a sign of God's favor on them, so they believe. And they've attached this spiritual hope to this sign of Jewishness, and, and that's their hope for the future, just this mark. Well, let's look at this a little bit, because we don't talk about this kind of stuff very much. This word circumcision, it comes from a Latin word, which means to cut around, to cut around. And it describes the original biblical reference to a surgery that was performed on little boys. It was also performed initially on adults, and often on adults as a record of scripture, as you find out. We're going to look at some of those. And it indicates whether they had... Uh, not been circumcised as children. And so the simple surgery basically involves remo removing the foreskin from around the male organ. It's a very simple surgery. Um, there's even Hebrew medical books that you can read on this and they give a lot of different details about the very instruments that they were to use to do this and all sorts of things. God himself basically established this, and, and, and if you turn back in Genesis chapter 17, I want to show you where. Now this is just kind of introduction this morning to this series that we're going to be going through in Philippians 3. But we, it's kind of an important foundation to lay, lay down so that we understand what we're talking about. Um, now, God is speaking to Abraham here in, in, in Genesis 17. And Abraham is basically the father of the Jewish people. He's the father of Israel, as we know. And now look at, at verse uh, 17, Genesis 17, verse 10. It says, this is my commit, uh, covenant which you shall keep between me and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Um, he who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or, brought, or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant, he who is born in your house and he who is bought with um, with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people for he has broken my covenant. So God says, basically, I want everybody living in this land that's going to be part of my people. I want everybody that you associate with. I want you all to be circumcised. And the plan, of course, is Abraham by now is a full-grown male, and he had to have his circumcision as an adult. We think that, you know, the little operation that goes on in the, in the, to the baby, that's not a big thing. But, you know, I think twice about that as a grown man. But that was a requirement. God's design was that basically from eight days of age, that child would be circumcised. And it's interesting when you even go over and you jump over and you read in some secular Egyptian literature, they began to circumcise. They did it for more of a uh, hygienic reason. And that's why a lot of people do it today. 
it, it helps in a lot of different areas as far as medically being uh, hygienic. God knew that when he commanded them to do this. And so it, God has authored this for his people. But the, the major purpose of it wasn't just hygienic. It was God's design. He had a purpose for it. God ordained that as a symbol, as a sign, and a very important one. And it's not just for a physical benefit. It had a spiritual kind of undertone as well. And the reminder is, is simply this. If, if, if I see that, uh, uh, you know, this, this circumcision, when we look into it, we're going to understand it a little, a little more. Um, now, if you stop and you think about this, one commentator brought this out. He says, at no point is a man's depravity more manifest than in the procreative act. And they say, well, what do you mean by that? Basically, what that means is we know men to be a sinner. Um, we're a sinner by attitude. Um, we're, we're just a sinner. The Bible says that our hearts are totally uh, wicked and unrighteous. How do we know that man is a sinner at the base of his character? How do you know that man is a sinner at the root of his existence? The, an the answer is this, by what he creates, by what he gives birth to. Whatever comes from the loins of a man, this commentator went on to say, is wicked because the man is wicked. And so that's why they say that nowhere more clearly is the depravity of man seen in the procreative act because they give birth to a child, but that little child is what? He's a sinner. You don't have to teach a child to sin. They're a sinner at birth. That's why Jesus Christ had no human father, because there was no human father who could produce a perfect person. So the Holy Spirit of God had to plant that perfect seed in Mary and bypass a human father. And the, the, the male organ then is the point at which that human depravity is most demonstrated. See, it's not the, the deeds of sin that pass on to the next generation. It's the nature of sin. When you have children, they're going to be sinners. And it's only until God gets a hold of their heart and turns them around and saves them that they have any righteousness of their own at all. And so when God demanded that the circumcision of the male, he was really giving them a symbol. It was the outward part of the, 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 the man's procreative organ. It was cleansed to remind them that man needed to be cleansed of sin at the deepest root of his being. That's really the idea. And you know what? It's, it's still the idea today. All men are sinners, and we all need that spiritual cleansing from the Lord. Now, did God intend it just to be physical? No, he intended it to be spiritual as well. Um, very early, it became important. As a matter of fact, even if you look through the Old Testament, you're not going to find a lot of commands for, for men to be circumcised. You're going to find a couple. Why? Because they practiced it. They didn't need to be commanded to do it. They just did it. Even in the, the bloodshed that occurred around cir circumcision, sometimes God had a purpose in that. Turn over to Joshua chapter 5. We touched on this when we went through the book of Joshua, but...
It was a very important sign of their relationship with God, but it was also used sometimes in some different ways. Um, now here are the children of, of Israel basically are in the wilderness. They've been marching for 40 years in the wilderness. The old generation had died off and now there's a new generation. We don't know exactly how many, but there's probably several millions of people here. And they've all grown up in the wilderness. In Joshua chapter 5, look at verse beginning in verse 2. He says, At the time the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives for yourselves and circumcise the sons of Israel again the second time. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt who were males, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come up out of Egypt. For all the people who came out had been circumcised, but all the people born in the wilderness on the other, on the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the children of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness till all the people who were the men of war who came out of uh, Egypt were consumed because they did not obey the voice of the Lord to whom the Lord swore that he would not show them the land which he had, uh, which the Lord had sworn to their fathers that he would give them uh, a land flowing with milk and honey. Then Joshua circumcised, verse 7, their sons whom he raised up in the place for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. And so you see here that, that it was a very important part of what they did. They had to circumcise the whole nation again because none of them were circumcised because they were out, you know, playing in the desert for 40 years. Even in Exodus 12, 48, and over in Leviticus 12, uh, 3, it says that it's not an optional thing for them. It was something that was, was required. It was required for all people, part of Israel, that they were... Um, they were uh, to be circumcised. Now, it's kind of a bizarre story, but turn back to Genesis 34. Even back as far as Genesis 34, circumcision was being practiced. Now, this is kind of a it's one of these weird, weird stories we find in Scripture. But it's an interesting one because it involves circumcision. Look at verse 1. It says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite, the Hivite, prince of the country, saw her, he took her and he lay with her and he violated her. He raped her, basically, is what happened. Verse 3. His soul was strongly attracted to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem... Uh, spoke to his father Hamar saying, get me this uh, young woman as a wife. Sounds like a little spoiled brat. Verse 5, And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dinah, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. Then Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, and the sons of Jacob came in from the field. And when they heard it, the men were grieved and very angry because he had done this disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing which ought not to be done. But Hamar spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her uh, to him as his wife. So he not only raped this poor girl, but now he just wants to take her as his wife. And he thinks that he has the right to do that. 
Verse 9, uh, and make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters to yourselves. And so, and, and, uh, so you shall dwell with us and the land shall be before you. Dwell and trade in it and acquire possessions for yourself in it. You see what's happening here. This is basically a satanic ploy to, to mess up the messianic line. They weren't to intermarry with these people. But Satan thought, hey, you know what? I'll, I'll provide this opportunity. So verse 11, Then Shechem said to her father and her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask me ever so much dowry and gift, and I will give according to what you say to me. But give me the young woman as a wife. He sees something and he wants it. Verse 13, look at what they do. But the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamar, his father, and spoke deceitfully because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. And they said to them, oh, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a reproach to us. But on this condition, we will consent to you. <laughs> if you become as we are, if every male of you is circumcised, then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to us, and we will dwell with you, and we will become one people. Verse 17, but if you not heed us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and be gone. And their words pleased Hamar and Shechem. You can see how much this guy wanted this gal. Verse 19, so the young uh, man did not de delay to do the, the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. He was more honorable than all the household of his father. And Hamor and Shechem, his son, came to the gate of the city and spoke with the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Therefore, let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For indeed, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us uh, give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men consent to dwell with us, to be one people. If every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. And it goes on there about the only consent that and we'll do this. And basically what happened is, verse 25, Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain. We won't, we won't elaborate on that. The two sons of Jacob, I mean, this is kind of a neat little scheme they did here. Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. And they killed Hamor and Shechem, his son, with the edge of the sword, and took Dinah from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of uh, uh, Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. I'm not going to get into the morality of all this deceit and, and bloodshed and things, but you can see how even back then, this circumcision was a sign, and it was so important that, you know, they would, they, wars were over these, these kind of things. It was a very important act that was to take place. And even in, in 1 Samuel 18, you can, you can read, there's another situation there where, um, same thing happens, similar. And so it's, it's, it's not just the physical act of circumcision, though. Um, 
There's more to that. It's not just an outward sign. Uh, Leviticus 26.41 talks about being circumcised in the heart. Uh, Deuteronomy 10.16 says, talks about the circumcised heart. Deuteronomy 30 verse 6 talks about the circumcised heart. Jeremiah 4.4 talks about a circumcised heart. Ezekiel 44.7 talks about a circumcised heart. See, God said, you know what, I, I want an outward sign, but I also want an inward reality of that sign. That's the key. A circumcised foreskin can only be a sign of a need for a circumcised heart. That's what it was to be. It was, it was an admittance that, you know what, yeah, this, this is something I need in my life. I, I can't do this on my own. I have no righteousness of myself. But they were, they got the whole thing all mixed up. And so they hung on to this mark like it was, it was the sign of everything. It'd be like if you had a cross around your neck and you went somewhere and they said, oh, that person is a Christian. How do you know? Well, they have a cross around their neck. I mean, that's how silly it would be. I mean, we know today just because somebody has a cross around their neck doesn't make them a Christian. But see, it's the same thing with circumcision. Back then, it was like, well, if you're circumcised, then you know what? You're, you're in favor with God. If you're not circumcised, then, you, then you, 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 there's no way you could ever have favor with God. Now, turn over to Romans 2. And you say, well, how does this relate to us? You have to stop and you have to remember that, you know what? In Christianity today, there's a lot of these trappings that we fall into. We fall into, you know, well, if you do this and you do that and everything, then somehow you're going to earn more favor with God. And we have to be careful of that. Not that it's not good to do good good works. God says that He's He's created us to walk in good works after we're saved. But they're always a result of our salvation. Over in Romans chapter two, look at verse twenty-five. See, the the folks that were circumcised here were clean physically. They had that mark, but they were never clean spiritually. Verse 25 says, For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. In other words, you know what? Just because you have this mark doesn't mean that you have favor with God. What he's saying is you could have that mark and break the law, and it's, that mark's not going to save you. It's just a symbol. It's a symbol of a need for cleansing. And that cleansing is spiritual cleansing. I mean, what, what would it matter, really? You think about it this way. If you came here on the Lord's Day and, and you took communion, but you sat there the whole time and you said, you know what, I don't believe in the crucifixion and I don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to take communion. It wouldn't mean anything to you. Or, you know, if you came here to be baptized, and when I'm baptizing you, you say, you know, I don't even believe in Jesus Christ. Why would you be baptized? See, you're, you're, you're performing an act. You're, 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 you're doing something that's a symbol, but there's no inward change. It would be absolutely pointless. See, a symbol never means anything unless there's an inward reality attached to it. And sometimes we have to remember that. So if you're a transgressor of the law, which we all are, and you've never been cleansed by the in, you know, on the inside by the grace of God, it doesn't matter what you do on the outside. You can have all the symbols you want. You know, you could have crosses hanging off your earlobes and around your neck and, you know, be baptized millions of times. It's not going to make any difference because there's no inward change. 
verse 26 there in Romans 2, he says, Therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteousness requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? What's he saying? He's saying it's not about the mark. It's about what's going on inside. Has God counted you as righteous or not? Have you trusted in the righteousness of Christ or not? Verse 27, And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? You can see, you can almost kind of you know, sarcasm there. Oh, you people think you're so, you know, you wrote the code and you're circumcised. You have all these rules that you play by and you think that you just, you know, he's saying basically you can have somebody who's uncircumcised and be righteous with God and they're going to end up judging you. In verse 28, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is, is, nor is circumcision that which is an outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and the circumcision is that of the what? Heart. The cutting of the heart. And it says in the spirit, not in the letter. Those uh, whose praise is not from men, but from God. In other words, circumc circumcision is something, yeah, it was a physical act that was performed on, on, on young children, and, and you know it's still done today. But the point is, is your heart circumcised? Is your heart cut? Did, was, was God able to come into your life and show you your own inadequacy, your own sinfulness before a holy God? And if he's done that, then your heart is cut to the quick and you acknowledge your sinfulness before God and you say, God, heal my heart. Save me. So circumcision is an external symbol and it really depicts a, a need for deep cleansing in one's life. But see, in Israel, in the nation of Israel, they basically kind of reduced this thing to a tribal tattoo. Hey, you're one of us if you got circumcised. They lost all spiritual meaning of it. It had nothing to do with spiritual significance whatsoever. And so then all of a sudden you have the new church giving... That was, that was born, and you have Christians, those who trust in Christ, and you have Jews. And the Jews are still claiming to be the people of God. We're the people of God, we're the people of God, and the Christians are saying, no, we're the people of God. I mean, that's basically why they killed Christ. They didn't want to accept the fact that they weren't the people of God. I mean, they're God's chosen nation, don't get me wrong. But they come to God just like everybody else. They have to come through the Messiah. And Paul, back to Philippians, is trying to make sure that they understand the difference that this, this thing's going on, this, this battle is going on. And that's why he says there in verse 2 of Philippians chapter 3, beware. Then he describes who these Jews are. They're dogs, they're evil workers, false circumcision. He's talking to those who have merely a religion on the outside the people of the day. And then in verse 3, he says, we're the true circumcision. And how are they identified? We're not dogs, evil workers, or, or mutilation. We're identified as those who worship in spirit of God, glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. See, that's the distinction. And he's making that distinction between true and false. 
those who truly know Christ, why would they want to put any confidence in the flesh? It doesn't make any sense. And it's been that way ever since, even today. You can't be saved by circumcision. You can't be saved by keeping some ceremonial law. You can't be saved by obeying some tradition. Or in your flesh keeping the law of God. You can't even be saved by that. Even if you could keep the whole law of God. It still wouldn't save you. Because that's not how you're saved. You're not saved by keeping the law. The law is given to us to show us our inadequacy, to show us our sinfulness. That's why the law was given. That's what grace is all about. See, but these Judaizers came along and behind Paul, as Paul was teaching grace through faith, and they would come into the church and they'd say, oh, no, no, no. You have to be circumcised or you're not a Christian. You're not truly part of the family of God until you become circumcised. And they'd show them some Old Testament passages. They have to keep the law. And they, these poor folks were getting confused. I mean, that's why Paul wrote, when he wrote the letter, read through the, the book of Galatians. It's all about one subject. It's all about those who preach a false gospel. In chapter 1, verse 7, Paul says, They are disturbing you, and they want you to distort the gospel of Christ. That's, you know, this is the day and age we live in today. People are distorting the true gospel of Christ. You know, you have to do this, you have to do that. You know, all these things. That's not what the gospel of Christ says. What they were saying is you must be circumcised physically, and you must keep all the law of Moses, the ceremonies of Moses. And so if you've got this outward sign and you've got to do all these ceremonies, all these sacrifices, all these offerings, keep all these holy days and Sabbath and feasts and all this stuff, and you do all this good, and eventually you earn your way. You say, well, how does that relate to us? Nice introduction, but how does that relate to us? We don't have Judaizers running around today. I tell you what, we have people running around with the same idea. People are saying all the time that, you know, if you want to be right with God, you got to do this. You got to do that. You got to light this candle. You got to bow down. You got to go through this ceremony. You got to say this prayer. You got to do this ritual. If you buy this, then you can absolve your sin. Or you got to join this organization or join that organization. You have to have a special kind of baptism. You've got to work your way into the kingdom of God somehow. And they're there to give you the prescription. <laughs> You know, there's only really two religions in the world today. There's only two. You can, you can kind of sum them up this way. There's the religion of divine accomplishment. Those who believe that, that salvation is by grace. And then you have the religion of human achievement. And that's every other religion on the face of the earth. That somehow, by doing something, you're going to earn favor with God and somehow he's just going to look the other way in regard to your sin.
See, you have to be careful because, you know, there, there's even some people that, that believe that, you know, um, they believe in grace, they believe we're saved by grace, but then, you know, out of their pocket comes a little card and some legalistic code that they, you have to follow, you have to do this, and if you do this, then, you know, it's, it's the way to earn your way to heaven. Yeah, God saved you, but you still got to do that. Some, some churches teach that you have to be water baptized or you can't get into heaven. That's a lie. That's not biblical. They teach that it's a necessary work. You have to do something for God to impart His grace upon you. Some would say that you have to pray a certain amount of time or you have to pray in a certain way. Some would say you have to engage in certain uh, practices, certain types of confessions. And at that point, your sin is somehow absolved, it's released from you. Some believe that if you take communion on, the basis, on that basis, that you have your sin forgiven by going to confession, that God somehow accepts that and just turns his, his eyes the other way. See, some way or another, this works into our everyday Christianity. And the battle is still here. People ask all the time, well, you know, ask you the simple question, well, do you believe that Seventh-day Adventists are, are Christians? Do you believe they're true believers? Do you believe they're saved? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's God's call, but I do know that what they believe is not biblical. I think the answer should be, you know what, a person is a Christian is, is the one who trusts completely and only in Jesus Christ for salvation. That's who the true believer is. And if you believe that somehow you can earn any merit with God as part of that salvation by going to church on Saturday, they're lost. Because that's not the true gospel. And where there are works, there's, there's no grace. And if salvation is by grace, then we have to hold on to that. Same thing with, with the Catholic Church. I mean, I grew up in the Catholic Church. You get this question all the time. What do you think, you know, Catholics are Christians? I mean, I look at their theology, and it's definitely not from the Bible. I mean, why would you want to believe that they're Christians in the saved sense? And we shouldn't go around judging people. That's not our call. But we do need to hold on to the true gospel message. And we need to be bold enough to share it with people. And what Paul is doing here in, in Philippians, he's just, getting, he's just getting warmed up. He's just saying, hey, you know what? Um, I'm going to lay out some things for you. It might be hard for you to hear. But I'm going to do it anyway because that's what God wants me to do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, we know this verse. For by grace you've been saved. It's not of what? It's not of yourselves. It's not of works lest any man should boast. For by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. I mean, that's, that's the heart of that verse. It's a gift of God. It's not something that you earn. You don't earn a gift. You couldn't earn a gift. I mean, what kind of gift would it be if you know if you went into went home today and, and your wife said, "Hey, you know, I got a gift for you, dear," and you went to take it and, they, and she said, "You know, go cut the lawn first, then I'll give you this little gift." That wouldn't be a gift. 
okay? And you stop and you think that's, that's how people relate to that sometimes. If you receive salvation in Christ by his death, his resurrection, as a gift of God, then you've received it by confessing your own sin and turning to Christ. That's, that's the true circumcision. That's somebody who's truly part of God's family. And the Philippians here needed to know the difference. And that's why Paul is saying, beware of some of these folks. We're going to go into them in the coming weeks. But I just, I want to, you know, as we look at what, what really is a believer in the coming weeks, what, what are the marks of a true Christian? Because Paul tells us in, in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to look at those together. But let's close in a word of prayer. As, as we close, bow our hearts and our heads before the Lord as the worship team comes. I don't know where you're at this morning. And I don't know if you could even relate to what we talked about just now. But I know that God wants to relate to you in a very real way. He wants to know you in a personal way. It's not about a religious thing. It's not about doing something. It's about admitting your need for a savior. Admitting that you're broken. Admitting that you're a sinner. And turning from your own devices. Turning from trying to work it out on your own. To someone who is more than willing to help you. And that's God. He sent his son to die in your behalf. What that means is somebody had to pay the penalty of sin. We couldn't do it because we're not a perfect sacrifice. All of us have sinned, the Bible said, and fall short of the glory of God. So he had to send his own son who was perfect in every way. And as you turn from yourself and you place your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, you turn away from your sin and you turn to God. He saves you. The Bible says that clearly. That he transforms your heart. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things become new. Lord, we who know you in a true way know you because you have redeemed us out of your sovereign love. Not by virtue of anything that we've done in any way. So we give you all the glory and all the credit. We come today to worship by the Spirit of God internally in our hearts. Not just go through the motions, some external ceremony. We've come to glory in Christ Jesus, not to boast about our own flesh and what we've accomplished in our own good works, but we've come with no confidence in the flesh, not believing for a moment there's any good thing in us whereby we can please you, because it's just not true. So we're the true circumcision, and we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray this morning, if there's any here who have yet to taste of your grace, who have yet to cry out to you for mercy, I ask that they would do that even this morning in the quietness of this moment. God, I'm a sinner. I need your help. Save me. That's a prayer God will hear. God will answer that prayer when it comes from a humble heart, when it comes from a heart that's broken. Father, we thank you for our service. We pray that you would bless us, bless our fellowship afterwards, and uh, 
just dismiss us with your blessing. As we sing this last song together, we pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.